sounds like it's about to squeak. All right, very good. Thanks for figuring that out. Hello, good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. Uh, today, I don't have a spot to tell you to turn to in Scripture, because we're going to be all over Scripture. Kind of the whole of Scripture is the text for today, if you'll forgive me for thinking that that's even possible. But when we're doing this Recharge series, it's my job to instruct you on the things that you need to be doing to be recharged, to find God giving you the grace that you need to keep going, to watch your little battery get charged up so that a million things, so that your life is better, so that you're filled with praise towards God, so that we can use you, honestly, so that you have something that you can give to the work of God and the building of his kingdom. And last week, we talked about how you should be reading deeply in Scripture. I don't know how often we do that, but if you give yourself the space To let a single passage of Scripture, maybe a single verse of Scripture, maybe a single phrase of Scripture, land and sit with you and change you. It's really, really important. That's why I'm speaking slowly. (laughs) I'm trying to give it some heavy moment because it, it works. But if you only do that, you're going to get really weird. Because if you only take one verse and tell yourself that you know what this means and starts kind of spinning your own life and understanding and theology off of that one spot, that one important, pivotal passage, you can get really weird. You have to not only read deeply, but read widely. So this is scripture part two, and we're talking about spiritual disciplines. It's not just meditating on a text. It is reading across scripture, giving yourself time to read lots of scripture, to read over big parts of scripture that maybe you wouldn't naturally go to and try and spend time in. Because if we'll get the discipline of ingesting lots of scripture, not only will we go deep with the Lord, but... We're going to start to find that God is not an imaginary God that we can sort of spin around one idea that we find in the text. We need to keep reading and see that God can't just be the God of your dreams, the God that you kind of want him to be based on this one idea or this one look, this one view, because he's so much bigger than that. Reading wildly, widely, and wildly if you want to, widely gives you the opportunity to see him more as he is. If not, you think he's going to be this God of your dreams. He ends up becoming something that's a horrible taskmaster, as so many people find. No, the real God is there. He's there to be seen. He's there to be engaged with. But he is real. He's not just an idea. He is a real person. And you need to read through the text in order to see both sides of him, the sides that are much sharper than you expected and the sides that are much softer than you imagined. He is real. Being with him in the scripture is like being in the cage with the lion. It's real. And in some ways, it's softer than you thought and warmer than you thought. I mean, you nuzzle, I went to the dry cleaner down the way here, and the lady had on a string a tiny little kitten tied up. 
not tied up, but like, you know, on its collar so it couldn't run away. She was being very kind to the kitten. But the little kitten was there, and it just, I don't like cats personally. Rachel's allergic. It's not going to be part of our life. But you see a kitten like that, and it looks so warm and so soft. What if the warmth and the soft was magnified a thousand times into the size of a gigantic lion? Wouldn't it be wonderful to hug something like that? Yeah, softer than you thought. And much sharper than you thought. One of the guys at Hope Church is named Larry McNeil, and he's been hunting all over the world. And he's got a lion that he has taxidermied at his house. And he let me bring my kids to see it. So it's taxidermied, which is very cool for your kids. It's also a conversation. You have to help them understand what, what it is they're looking at. And no, it's not a lion, kind of. Yeah. But you can go and you can touch it and see that, yeah, it is soft and it is big. But it's also sharp. You imagine, get up close to one of those paws and imagine what that could do to you. Get up close to those teeth and imagine what one little twitch could do to you. Now you got to get into Scripture and see Him as He is. See Him as, as big as He is. This person that you meet in Scripture, He's like a lion, He's like a king. You stand before this king and He can do whatever a king wants to do. He could knight you. He could marry you. He could imprison you. He could cut your head off. He's a king. And we need to be able to read widely in order to understand, to see, to be impacted by the whole counsel of this king. And I'm talking to people today who think either that they know the Bible very well or that the Bible's just big and dusty and just way too intimidating to try to get into. So let me speak briefly to both. If you're somebody who's grown up receiving the scriptures, you've been te- taught the scriptures for a long time in your life, you sang them, you had them fed to you in little children's versions as kids, and then as you got older, you were forced to read and read and read, and you feel like you kind of got it. Well, no, you don't. <laughs> you, you, you think you kind of got it, and you're getting maybe a little bored with it. Well, I ran across this quote this week, and I loved it. It says, if you look at a thing 999 times, you're perfectly safe. But if you look at it the thousandth time, you're in frightful danger of seeing it for the first time. There's going to be a point, if you think you get this, if you think you know it, where all of a sudden the whole world shifts and turns upside down, the lights come on, and you are dazzled by what you find there. It's not going to take you as much time as you think to jump back in and to find that you're not as familiar with it as you thought. If you really are thinking that the Scripture is dull or understood by you already, let me ask you to walk through it with one of our new believers or one of our investigators to Christianity. Because real quick, your cheeks are going to get red as you go, uh, yeah, let me explain that. So she put a tent peg through the king's head while he was under the rug because Jesus, uh... You're going to have to try and explain. Yeah, so AI, you know, they really weren't great, and so they had to be killed because you're going to find really quickly that the Scripture is not tame. The Scripture is not something that you've got figured out. And for those of you who don't know the Scriptures and you're thinking about how impossible it'll be to jump into, digitally you can't really tell, but if you hold a physical one, it's a big book. 
Well, let me encourage you the same way you would encourage somebody who moves to Salt Lake for the first time or visits Salt Lake for the first time. And you take them up Little Cottonwood Canyon. And you take that little turn up Cottonwood Canyon. All of a sudden, you know, you go from like the mountains to into the canyon and the mountains like open up like the doors of Jurassic Park. They just open up into this magnificence that's overwhelming. Well, what do you do with that? You can't ingest that. You can't take all of that in. How do you take that beauty in? Well, you start. You go, you go for a hike. You just start walking. And you realize in the particular, in the small, in the one view of the mountain that you're getting something of the message of the whole of the mountain, the beauty, the permanence. You get something of the whole in the little bit that you take in. And if you had a thousand lifetimes with those mountains, you wouldn't be able to take in every rock, every flower, every view. It's too big. So let me just encourage you to start that story, to incentivize you by seeing that at any point in Scripture, you're encountering the great story of Scripture, that you're seeing something of the beauty and the electrifying power of the message in Scripture at any point of Scripture, if you'll read. Maybe the most helpful way to kind of get you going in this uh, journey is to give you a a sort of shorthand to see the whole of the story of Scripture so that when you read at any point in Scripture, you're able to kind of find your footing. And that's what we're going to do today. There's four words that I think are really helpful to, to give you that scope. And they don't rhyme and they don't start with the same letter, but they're the best words I can think of for these four concepts. They are creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And we're going to look at them as quickly as we have time for in order to hopefully give you a little bit of a map, a little bit of a grounding point for how you might get into this magnificent book. In the first place, creation. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The whole of Scripture begins with the idea that God did make everything. It's very important for you to understand that. It establishes in that one verse that God is God and that we are creation. We are separate from him. And as you read through that first chapter of Genesis, you hear this repeated refrain, and he saw that it was good. And then he created this new thing, and he saw that it was good. And then he was over here creating this new thing, and he saw that it was good. And then he finishes in 131 by saying, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. If I create anything, I'm generally pretty impressed with myself because of pride and because of just sort of being self-inflated. But God is not self-inflated. He is accurately judging his creation to be very good. Why? Because it's very good. The starting point for you as you come to meet God is to understand that there is something in this world that it, at, its, at its heart, at its deepest moment, is very good. God did make us, and he made us for a connection to him, that he gave us something called love. And yeah, we see through a mirror dimly now, but we still, even now, experience something about 
love. Love that is separate yet together. Think about that. If I, if I have a sandwich, that sandwich is separate from me, but for me to enjoy it, it is consumed by me. It becomes one with me. Or, you know, it becomes me and a little bit of other. But it becomes me. Most of the time we go through the world that way. Seeing people, seeing opportunities, seeing stuff as something that you just take into yourself. It's here to serve me, to become part of me, part of my world, an admirer of me, somebody who's going to serve me. That's not love. Yeah, I enjoy a sandwich, but I love my wife. My wife is different from me, separate from me. And frustratingly and beautifully different from me. And yet being different, we can come together in love. We can love one another. God created, and he created something that was separate from him, but that he was able to love. And it is very good. You can experience creation all the time as you enjoy any pleasure that you have out in the world. You can find in that pleasure the end of a sunbeam that you can trace back up to the sun. You're unwrapping a gift with a from card on it. You have the gift, but you're understanding from this gift that there is a giver. Creation. We see it all the way through Scripture. He is telling us that He is God. He has created. And in His essence and in its essence, creation is very Good, and yet the story immediately takes a nosedive in that while there is good, there is beauty, there is pleasure, there is love in this world, there's also obviously something awfully wrong with this world. The world has gone bad, and that badness is specific to the break between us and God. That initial connection, creation, that we are different, separate, and yet connected in love has been severed, not just by Adam and Eve in the fall, but by us daily as we choose anything else other than over him. That's what it says in Romans 3.23. So now we're in the New Testament looking back at the whole of the human situation. Paul says, Holy Spirit says through Paul, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Hearts are darkened, expelled from the garden, broken in our relationship to Him, separated from Him, not just separate and loved, but separated from Him with a severe separation, the separation of sin. This guy, Randy Alcorn, talks about it in a book called The Goodness of God, and it's a book about evil and, and suffering in the world. It's a very short book. I didn't commend it to you. But he talks about how we try to liberate ourselves from God's standards and replace them with our own standards. When we do this, we not only deny God, but we affirm ourselves as, lowercase g, God. We commit the idolatry of self. Evildoers, we not only reject God's law, we create our own and often attempt to take the moral high ground by calling God's standards unloving, intolerant, and evil. Most people today understand evil as anything that harms others. 
The more harm done, the more evil the action. But the Bible uses the word evil in a broader way to describe anything that flows, not from loving God, but rebelling against Him. That definition is specific to Scripture, and that definition is all-encompassing. Because it's not just like poking people who can't poke you back. It's anything you do, setting yourself up as your own authority over your life. How long would it take for us to find an example? Today. And he's saying that, that disconnect from our creator, the one who sustains us and gives us life and is built to be the only thing that actually satisfies us, that disconnect from him creates all of the discontent in our own world. But it also creates, because we were the head of creation, creates the brokenness throughout the whole of creation. Death. Wow. We're a church that's experienced a lot recently. How painful, how awful, how exactly what we decided. And then the natural evil that's out throughout the world, according to Scripture, came about because of our breaking that connection with God. It's a creation that is very good, was very good, and yet because of that separation is disintegrating. It's breaking apart. And yet... While the whole of the Scripture is preaching both God and His goodness and us and our sinfulness, it's also preaching the way that God has come to impact that situation. That word redemption is that He has not left us to just sort of implode in on ourselves forever, but that He set in place a rescue operation. And the whole of that plan can be said in, in the single word, Jesus. Old Testament pointing to Him, New Testament pointing to Him, that one name, Jesus. The name that actually literally means God saves. And this redemption that takes place, you ready? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Is that the thousandth time you've heard that verse? I hope so. Maybe you can start actually seeing that verse. Because if you could really see that verse, if you really could understand that verse, you'd be in heaven right now. In all of your tears and all of your sweat, with all of your bleeding, you would be in heaven connecting with that perfect God, because you would understand how he has come to redeem all of this sadness and come to bring all of the goodness that he's promised. It would be a hope of heaven, but you would be experiencing right now in all of our sin and all of our brokenness, all of our separation from him, you would be experiencing his presence now. That's what the scripture describes as heaven. This redemption that he's describing is that God, separate from the world, holy, and we're broken, that he should just destroy the world, has instead, because he so loved the world, sent his son into the world, an invading party. But he can't fix it by just killing everybody. He can't fix it by just killing the devil. It's not the devil's fault. We've 
fallen short of the glory of God. Man, you go walking through the streets and you see these people that are in just total broken mode. How do you help them? How do you fix them? They're not $5 away from being fixed. How do you help them? Have you ever tried? Man, God bless Dickie. He's not here, so I'll talk about him. He went really hard to try and help a guy who was in a really broken situation. I mean, he put his yes on the table. He put his money on the table. He put his house on the table. He put his car on the table. He put his cell phone plan on the table. And I hope he never watches this because he'll get proud that we're talking about him. Stop. (laughs) But he watched as that guy sort of changed and then, yeah, didn't. And that story is long and grand, and who knows what God's going to do through it. And there's all kinds of ups, too. But you can't just fix somebody. The only way you can attempt is to give them a love. Give them a way, but give them a love that's so compelling, so self-sacrificial, so evidently not for you, but only for them, that they're drawn in. Can I tell you that's exactly what's being described in John 3.16? He's made a way for us to be forgiven. That wasn't a given. It's not like God can just turn a switch and make you forgiven. He has to pay for your sin. But he did. He made a way by dying on the cross for you and in dying on the cross for you, set up a love that is so drastically compelling, so severe in the way he had to deal with our sin himself. Oh, so (laughs) warm and attractive. That if you'll just believe, you won't perish, but you'll have life forever with him. A life that looks like constantly handing back over your rebellion and your sin and taking on again his love and his forgiveness. I think it was Isaac, uh, not Isaac Watts, one of the Puritans. But they talk about that the, the Christian life is like a bird and you got two wings. One is faith and one is repentance. We'll talk more about repentance in the weeks to come. But I think that that's a big part of what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 16 when he says to his disciples, if anybody's going to come after me, he's got to deny himself and he's got to take up his cross and follow me. Because if you want to save your life, you got to lose it. But if you will lose your life, for my sake, you will find it. What's it going to profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? He's saying what's absolutely accurate. To be his is to give up the kingship of your own life. To give up literally your life. But if you give it up to him, you actually get life. It will feel like taking up a cross daily. But what you receive is him (laughs) dying to death to be reborn to life. Do you see that? Restoration, holiness meets God's mercy. His absolute, severe, uh, never in question, always 100% righteous Holiness meets his never-ending, always-forgiving, unbelievably incredible mercy. 
And he talks about it. Even in the Old Testament, in Psalm 85, it says, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. In the, KJV, or the New King James, it says it this way. Mercy and truth have met each other. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Restoration, that's that process. God's absolute justice meeting God's never-ending love. That through the cross, you can be forgiven and accepted. And if so, then we roll right into restoration. Hope, a plan, a place where you finally forget yourself and become His. It says in Revelation, so the very end of Scripture, 21, 3 through 4, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. I hope that that voice doesn't sound like my voice. <laughs> Imagine, you just blow your eardrums out, gigantic, angelic voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That he's really going to do that. He's really going to restore it all, and all the sad things are going to come untrue one day in Christ. And the whole of the scripture is preaching that over and over and over again. No more pain, no more separation. This book is changing everything. Are you reading it? Is it reading you? Is it changing you? Is it flipping all the stuff that you thought was settled upside down? Is he showing you his goodness in creation, our fallenness? His love in that, restora- in that redemption and the promise in that restoration. Is he showing you that day after day, after day, after passage, after chapter, after book. I want him to. Will you let him? What I'm talking about is repetition. Yes, continue to read. I remember the first time that I read through the Bible in a year, I was real proud of myself. I was very task-oriented that year. I was clicking my daily and making sure that I was reading my task and actually getting through and reading the whole thing in a year. December 31st, Bible read. Yeah, did it. And then it was January 1st, Genesis 1. Here we go. Can I tell you, as a Christian pastor of the gospel, come on. I had that feeling of like, no, nah, Really? But I did that. No, you didn't. Keep going. Keep pressing. Keep seeing. Keep repeating. And let this drive deeper and deeper. And as I repented of that awful emotion and started to see that repetition over and over, I saw that God had structured the Scripture itself on that repetition. If you start reading through the Old Testament, you realize that the first five books of the Bible, called the Pentateuch, the, the second, third, fourth, and fifth of those books, tell and then retell and then retell and then retell the story of the law. 
You get into the history that follows that Pentateuch, and you see that they start telling you the same stories over and over again between 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, and 1st, 2nd Chronicles, telling you the story of King David with his failure and his faithfulness, then the spiraling of the kingdom under all of these kings, the, the Israelite kings that keep choosing to go to these other gods, and the Judean kings that sometimes do, sometimes don't, until eventually this crash takes place, and the prophets tell you again about that crash. What happened? How did it happen? How could it, been av- how could it have been avoided? How was God faithful through the whole of that crash? How will it be put back together? And you're reading through this prophecy and this poetry, and you're seeing God in his fullness putting all of this stuff into these grand colors and showing you the drastic, awful, deep, dark tones and the beautiful, light, unbelievable, redemptive tones. You get into the New Testament, you see that it's telling you the story of Jesus' life, but it doesn't just do it once. It does it four times. Really? Why? Repetition. You start talking to New Testament scholars, they'll tell you that the thesis statement for the Gospels isn't at the beginning, it's at the end. Why? Because they anticipate you reading that thesis statement and going, whoa, and starting over again. Why? Petition. It's anticipated that you need to hear this and then hear it again and hear it in a different way and hear it in a different way. You get into the rest of the New Testament, you have letters reciting to you the gospel. You write down for me the big distinctions between Romans and Ephesians. I know Romans is longer. What else you got? <laughs> Rep, petition. Nobody's advocating we get rid of Romans because we have Ephesians. We want them both. Rep, petition. If you will read, if you will see, the message of the Scripture will get into you. It'll change you. It'll bring to you this lion, this king, this one in whom you live and move and have your being, this one who can crush you and yet loves you with a love that will change everything for you. Will you? Just at least commit to keep coming to Hope Church. You're going to hear it every week. Let us help you by community. Get into, this will be your book reading club. We'll help you get into the text and read it together. Answer your questions, pray for you, encourage you when things start to kind of fall off. But commit to having this word change you. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, I do ask that this word would change us that we would see in it what you want us to see, that we would be changed by it in the ways that you want us to be changed, Lord. I I thank you so much for the way that you have started that work in me. And it's just the beginning of, Lord, what I know you have planned. But I pray that Hope Church would be a people founded on this book, that we would be a people who are studious, that, that spend our time with our nose in this book, not because we want to be people who know all the Bible trivia, Not because we want to be people who can say to you or to the world that we had our Bible time today, but because we want to know you. We want to stand in the presence of the King. Though you might smite us, Lord, and receive from you instead that love. Pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.